Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey. Let the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea. A new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast where we talk about hidden history, de-political policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the odd man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific, technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. Hello, oddities. Welcome to another edition of the Oddcast featuring the Odd Man Out. Thank you for taking your time, as always, to hang out with me. This week I've got a special show for you, at least I hope you think so, and that is covering the origins of the United States education system. A lot of people have done shows on this, but I would be remiss if I didn't do my own version. And so we'll get right to the origins and where it all came from, and might I say after researching this, I can't help but think of how it's amazing that things haven't gotten worse than they already have. Because as we look into the beginnings of this whole thing, we see that the socialists had their hands all over education from the very beginning. Now, I hate to be repetitive, because I have mentioned this quote on probably four shows before. I mentioned it on the last one about Fabian Socialism Part 2. But John Ruskin, because he was such an influential guy, he influenced not only the Fabian Socialists, but the Rhodes Roundtable groups as well. And let me just go ahead and say the reason I am going to repeat this quote one more time, one last time, is because I feel it encompasses the feeling of these people who want to control education, want to control the world, essentially, through their measures, their policies, and whatnot. And we all know that the urge to save humanity is almost always the false urge to rule it. Time and Tide, 1867. John Ruskin wrote, The first duty of the state is to see that every child born therein shall be well housed, clothed, fed, and educated. 
But in order to do this, the government must have an authority over the people of which we now do not so much as dream. Now, Karl Marx said in Das Kapital, Education is free. Freedom of education shall be enjoyed under the condition fixed by law and under the supreme control of the state. Vladimir Lenin said, Give me your four-year-olds, and in a generation I will build a socialist state. Adolf Hitler said, Let me control the textbooks, and I will control the state. And Stalin said, Education is a weapon whose effects depend on who holds it in his hand and at whom it is aimed. In one last quote, Mark Twain said, Education, the path from cocky ignorance to miserable uncertainty. Now, I feel that we need to understand just how our education system came to be. But before I get into that, I want to talk about a little bit of personal history with the education system and my children. Several years ago, in middle school, my daughter was having trouble with these two sisters. They're picking on her constantly. My daughter is very laid back, very, very laid back, low-key, great student, made great grades. But these kids were just jealous of her, and they gave her hell. And it went on and on. They threw stuff at her. They yelled at her. You name it, threw water on her, stuff like that. We went to the school, and they basically told us, well, uh, these girls, they're both adopted, and if we do something like kick them out, then they won't return to school, and they'll never graduate. Well, my daughter eventually graduated, The situation never really got better. She finally changed schools because it went all the way into high school. These girls were throwing sandwiches and things like that at her for lunch. They're just just really pieces of crap. Well, guess what? Neither of the two girls graduated. And so if you have a student who is motivated and is trying to do the right thing, well, the education system, instead of rewarding them and trying to help them be even better students, They reward kids who are never going to even do anything with their education. And so it's just not equipped to help people who actually are trying to make something of their lives. And that's a pretty good representation of what I dealt with with my kids at school. Now my son is going to that same middle school, and it's his first year there, and it's been hell. And the thing is, you you can call me a dick or whatever, but... What you have with this middle school, you have all these smaller middle schools, excuse me, you have these smaller elementary schools. You have these smaller elementary schools in the area. There's several of them, and they're out in the country area, okay? And all these kids went to school with each other all their lives, and it's just really rural, laid-back type of thing. And these kids, most of these kids are really good students, and they don't act out. You know, there's always one in every crowd, but Then the middle school, instead of building a middle school here close to the high school and the elementary school, the middle school is in the downtown area, in an urban area next to the projects and the downtown part, really seedy area. So you've got all these kids coming together that don't know each other. They're starting to hit puberty. You've got culture clashes, fights all the time, violence all the time. As soon as my kid got to middle school, he said, Dad, like half of these kids think they're trans. 
is just insane and literally fights all the time. And it's not just fights with guys. It's girls fighting girls. It's guys fighting girls. He's seen guys hit girls right in the face and girls attack guys for no reason. It's just insane. So thank God we finally, finally searched till we found an affordable private school where he's going to go there for several days a week and then do homeschool a couple days a week. We're getting him out of the public school hellhole, and I won't have any children in this god-awful public school system any longer. To hell with the public school system. It is unfixable, and I understand that there are some good teachers out there, but they're in a system that is just pure crap, and it was invented by socialists, and we're going to find out about that. So, Alex Newman says, the first giant step away from traditional classic Christian education towards socialistic and humanistic indoctrination and the dumbing down of the American education system began under Horace Mann. In 1837, again in Massachusetts, Mann was appointed as the first ever education secretary of an American state. As a Unitarian who rejected the Bible as the inspired and inerrant Word of God, Mann had big ideas about reforming the highly successful education system that existed at the time. His efforts would ultimately lead to the fundamental transformation of the education system in America, putting it on course to end up where it is today. Alex goes on to say that while Mann went to Prussia for educational inspiration, John Dewey would visit Vladimir Lenin's Soviet Russia, returning home to shower the brutal mass-murdering regime with praise in the New Republic for creating a collectivistic mentality through the education and propaganda. As a model, John Dewey frequently pointed to the 1888 novel Looking Backward by Edward Bellamy that envisioned a communist America in the year 2000. It was a radical vision, especially at the time, but it animated Dewey and his supporters in their quest to reshape America by reshaping its children, by reshaping their education. Looking Back is another one of those socialist go-to books like Francis Bacon's The New Atlantis and the book Utopia. And we're going to be talking quite a bit about John Dewey, who taught at Columbia University for over 20 years. And if you look back at what we've learned from the Pilgrim Society and the Council on Foreign Relations, Columbia University is a huge hub for the globalists. And they all seem to gather there. And there's a very important teacher's college there that John Dewey started. Remember John Dewey, the father of U.S. education, signed the Humanist Manifesto. Now we're going to read from the first chapter of John Coleman's One World Socialist Dictatorship, and he's talking about how Fabian Socialism was such a big influence on education in America. Mark Starr was a product of Fabian Socialism, and although he started a little bit rough around the edges, seeing as he began his life as a coal miner, he was not rejected by the Ivy League Socialists of Harvard and Yale, to which the Fabian Society had gained access in its orderly progression up the ladder from its humble beginnings in London. Starr immigrated to the United States in 1928 after earning his socialist credentials at the National Council of Labor Colleges, 
Tutored by the formidable Margaret Cole, the founder of the Fabian Research Center, Starr was the link between the Fabian Society in London and the burgeoning socialist movement here in America. Starr served at the Brockwood Labor College from 25 to 28, at an early age subjected to a socialist education second to none. The Socialist Garland Fund gave Starr a grant of $74,227, a considerable sum of money in those days. He later became educational director of the International Ladies' Garment Workers Union from 35 to 62. His work on labor politics and labor education was outstanding in the cause of socialism. As far as Starr was concerned, education meant teaching that private profit was wrong and should be abolished. In 1941, Starr was appointed as vice president of the American Federation of Teachers, an avant-garde socialist teacher's body of the day. After taking an American citizenship, Starr was named by President Harry Truman to the United States Advisory Commission, authorized by Public Act 402, to advise the State Department and the Congress on the operation of information centers, libraries maintained by the United States government in foreign countries, as well as on the exchange of students and technical experts. This was indeed a coup for socialism in the United States. Fabian socialism attracted many of the upper elite of society in Britain and the United States. It is said of the American socialists that they aped their English betters, admiring their command of the language. Their quick turn of the phrase and their genteel respectability, perhaps personified by Professor Graham Wallace, Sir Stafford Cripps, Hartley Shawcross, and Richard Crossman. Wallace was lectured at the New School for Social Research in New York City, a socialist think tank founded by the New Republic. And we see New Republic all over social media. It's a socialist rag and always has been. But we'll... Uh, Move back to this. A socialist think tank founded by the New Republic magazine that cared for left-wing professors, of which the United States had more than its share. Wallace was one of the earliest intellectuals to join the then nondescript Fabian Society, which back in 1879 faced a very uncertain future and was considered to be a threat to government and church. Wallace's early interest in education is mirrored by one of his earliest jobs, that of County School Management Committee of the School Board. As we shall see in other chapters, the Fabian Socialist hierarchy considered control of education the kingpin in their strategy to capture the world. The idea was further reflected by Wallace's teaching appointment at the London School of Economics, founded by Sidney Webb, and then a still-fledgling socialist institution of learning. Wallace had only four students in his class. I'm getting right to it, guys. Wallace believed that the way to socialize a country was through applied psychology. The way to socialize America, Wallace contended, was take to the mass of the population by the hand like children. He did not have a very high regard for education in the United States, and like children, lead them one step at a time down the road to socialism, to which I would add, and ultimately slavery. Wallace is an important name in this account of socialism, as he wrote a book which was adopted word for word by President Lyndon Johnson as a Democrat Party official policy. The sinister creeping progress of socialism that began to blanken England might have been avoided but for WW1. 
the flower of Christian British youth who would have resisted the onward march of this alien concept, lay dead in the fields of Flanders, their lives uselessly thrown away on a nebulous idea of patriotism, numbed by the horrific loss of their sons, the older generation did not care what socialism was doing to their country, believing that there will always be an England. Social psychology was a weapon used deftly to deflect attacks on American Fabian organizations. Americans for Democratic Action said it was not part of the Fabian Society, and its mouthpiece, the nation, sought vehemently to deny attempts to tie the two in with each other. In 1902, Wallace was teaching outright socialism at the Philadelphia University summer sessions. He had been invited to the United States by wealthy American socialists who attended Oxford summer schools in 1899 and 1902, the period when the summer school indoctrination classes were at the height of their popularity with rich Americans who had nothing better to do. The year 1910 found Wallace as the mentor of the American socialist leaders like Walter Lippmann, delivering the Lowell Lectures at Harvard. Graham Wallace was recognized as being among the big four socialist intellectuals in Britain, and as such, he was sought out by the American socialist Ray Stannard Baker, the emissary of Colonel Edward Mandel House, sent to the peace conference to represent him and find out what the delegates were doing. By 1905 and 1910, Graham Wallace wrote The Great Society, which was to become the blueprint for President Johnson's program of the same name and which embodied social psychology principles. Wallace made it very plain the object of social psychology was to control human conduct, thus preparing the masses for the coming socialist state that would ultimately lead them in slavery, although he was careful not to spell it out like that. Wallace became a conduit in the United States for Fabian socialist ideas, much of them going into Roosevelt's New Deal, written by socialist Stuart Chase, Kennedy's New Frontier, written by socialist Henry Wallace, and Johnson's Great Society, written by Graham Wallace. From these facts alone, the tremendous impact of Fabian socialism upon the American political scene can be gauged. Now, I know we learned a lot about Fabian Socialism in the two episodes I did on the subject, but I think it's very important to see how all these subjects are connected. And we'll soon talk about the Skull and Bones and how they were directly connected to the origins of American education as well, but not in this episode. And we get back to John Dewey, who's considered probably him and Horace Mann, the two fathers of American education. and. Oddly enough, or not so oddly enough, John Dewey, Professor John Dewey, taught four out of the five Rockefeller brothers. So you see, these guys, I mean, there's so many links and connections here, and education really has a lot to do with a lot of the things that we've seen since all this happened, and even before. In my pedagogic creed, the school is primarily a social institution. Education being a social process, the school is simply that form of community life which all those agencies are concentrated that will be the most effective in bringing the child to share in the inherited resources of the race 
and to use his own powers for social ends. Education, therefore, is a process of living and not a preparation for future living. That was John Dewey. Hegel said, The state is the absolute reality, and the individual himself has objective existence, truth and morality only in his capacity as a member of the state. Now, getting back to the Teachers College at Columbia that I mentioned earlier, in 1916, the Department of Educational Research was established at the Teachers College in Columbia. Under its direction, the Lincoln School was established in 1917, and this kindled the fire which helped to spread progressive education. The quotation is from a pamphlet issued by the Teachers College itself. The same pamphlet states that John D. Rockefeller made available $100,000 per year for 10 years for the Teachers College through the International Education Board and to establish and maintain an international institute at the college. It also recorded, among other things, that Dr. George S. Count had been made the associate director of the institute a few years before 1923. Now, what a lot of this new education consisted of was taking the Fabian model of social science, which is basically a science to indoctrinate people into believing in a socialist system, a collectivist system, and getting away from the rugged individualism that made America what it was. And so that's what they were doing. They were implementing these social sciences into education, which had not yet been done in the United States of America. Now, another teacher by the name of Henry Bernard, who was very influential, according to this, only second only to Horace Mann, in championing the state education, no one at all familiar with the deficient household arrangements and deranged machinery of domestic life of the extreme poor and the ignorant, to say nothing of the intemperate, of the examples of rude manners, impure and profane language, and all the vicious habits of low-bred idleness, can doubt that it is far better for the children to be removed as early and as long as possible from such scenes and examples. And I wonder who is fit to decide that they should be taken away from their family. So many things that we've heard over the years that just laughed off by mainstream corporate media that the left makes fun of for suggesting. It's things that they've said and have been saying, obviously, for over a hundred years. And every now and then, some brave or foolish soul, one of them, will actually tell the truth in the public sphere, and someone hears it or it gets recorded, and people begin to talk about it. But it's nothing new. They've always wanted major control over our children and your life. Now, let's talk a little bit about Horace Mann, who was a Mason. And, of course, we know that Masons do not say sectarian prayers because they don't believe in just one deity. So he was very much against prayer in school, and he was a Unitarian, so that kind of makes sense there. Thank you, Masons. Now, Mann became the secretary to the Massachusetts State Board of Education in 1837 and established the first normal, as we call it, public school. 
His concept of universal education followed the European Pestalozzi schools, hope that I uh, pronounced that correctly, but probably not, whose founder, Johann Heinrich Pestalozzi, was a strong believer in Rousseau's permissive education beliefs, as in the latter's book, Emile. I'm reading this, by the way, of course, from Dr. Dennis L. Cuddy in his Now is the Dawning of the New Age of the New World Order. Rousseau was influenced by Johann Friedrich Herbart, who was influenced by Fichte, promoted by the Illuminati. Preceding man was Fanny Wright, Madame Frances de Arousamont, who came to the U.S. in 1824 with Marquise de Lafayette and then joined Robert Dale Owen. Pretty sure Marquise was a Mason as well. I've read about him in the past, but it's been a long time. Joined by Robert Dale Owen in 1828 in an experiment in communism in New Harmony, Indiana. Wright was the favorite pupil of Jeremy Bentham, founder of Utopian Welfare State Utilitarianism, and developed a system she called National Rational Republican Education, free for all at the expense of all, conducted under the guardianship of the state to be apart from the contaminating influence of parents. And that was a quote. She, Owen, and Orestes Brownson formed the Working Men's Party in New York with the purpose of controlling political power in the state so that they could establish a system of schools to destroy Christianity. Brownson later converted to Christianity, and in the works of Orestes Brownson, volume 19, one reads, The great object was to get rid of Christianity and to convert our churches into halls of science. The plan was not to make open attacks upon religion, although we might belabor the clergy and bring them into contempt where we could, but to establish a system of state, we said national, schools, from which all religion was to be excluded, in which nothing was to be taught but such knowledge as is verifiable by the senses, and to which all parents were to be compelled by law to send their children. Our complete plan was to take the children from their parents at the age of 12 or 18 months and to have them nursed, fed, clothed, and trained in these schools at the public expense. But at any rate, we were to have godless schools for all children of the country. The plan has been successfully pursued, and the whole action of the country on the subject has taken the direction we sought to give it. One of the principal movers of this scheme had no mean share in organizing the Smithsonian Institute. I don't have anything really good to say about the Smithsonian. Many of us believe, and there's pretty good information to suggest, that they have hidden a lot of stuff from us and another British-controlled organization that probably does not have our best interests or the interests of their own citizens at heart. And by the way, we mentioned Johann Gottlieb Fichte. I believe that's how you say the last name. It's F-I-C-H-T-E. He was around the same time as George Hegel of the Hegelian dialectic. And he has this famous quote, Education should aim at destroying free will so that other pupils are thus schooled and they will be incapable throughout the rest of their lives of thinking or acting otherwise than as their schoolmasters would have wished. 
Now, I'll quickly say that I'm not going to pretend like any of these guys I'm talking about. I'm not going to pretend like every single thing they taught and they said was bad. Of course, it wasn't. And I try to always make that point because a lot of these right-wing guys, they just talk all about the negatives and nothing about the positives. And I'm not going to go over a bunch of their positives. You can do that on your own. This is really just about the origins of education. And really, it's all about control. And unfortunately, what education has become and what it is destroys the specialness in each student. It destroys the creativity in each student. And every now and then there's a teacher who shines through the darkness. But how? what chance do they have of really shining through in this system that we have? It's just like, what chances does a person who goes into politics actually have in this beast system that is just full of bribery and full of selfishness and networking and just, you know, what it's become. So I think we have to think about that aspect of it and be realistic about the whole thing. Now in 1917, when we still had at least a few good representatives in our government, it says here in Dennis L. Cuddy's book, The Road to Socialism in the New World Order, the Carnegie Foundation, as well as the Rockefeller Foundation's general education boards, were receiving increasing scrutiny from Congress. And it was evident from the following discussion on January 26, 1917, of the Congressional Record regarding these two entities. Senator George Chamberlain, Oregon, described activities that have been indulged in through the U.S. Bureau of Education by agencies which seem to me to be inimical to the education of the youth of this country. He referred to pets of the Bureau like Professor Charles Judd, who was paid $1 per year by the Bureau, and then Professor Judd used the government's franking privilege through the Bureau to spread his ideology. Other pets included progressive education placement barons like Elwood Cubberley of Stanford University, Paul Hainis of Harvard University, and George Strayer of Columbia University's Teachers College, who was a member of the Educational Trust and would say, give them an axe regarding disobedient subordinates, and who would become the head of the National Education Association a couple of years later. Senator Chamberlain noted that Professor Judd's view went out like this, as though it were actually an authoritative publication of the views of government. They are moving with military precision all along the line to get control of the education of the children of the land. I venture to say that if you put the educational system of this country in the hands of any particular class of individuals, in two generations, they can practically change the form of our government by educating the children along certain lines. I do not think any particular set of individuals ought to have exclusive control of the education of our children. And let me tell you, the Carnegie Endowment still writes textbooks, and I'm sure the Rockefellers do as well. They have a lot of control over education and higher ed as well. And so we understand, I call it GovCorp, because in so many aspects, we like to pretend there's this big split between 
the public and private sector. But then you look into these these uh, NGOs, you look into these supposed philanthropic organizations like the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and the Fords and all that. And it's really just another means of control, influence, and they get tax-exempt status. Let's read a little bit further about the Carnegies and Rockefellers and their influence. Senator Miles Poindexter, Washington, said that the cult of the Rockefeller and Carnegie endowments, in the viewpoint which they represent in political economy and in government, is just as much to be guarded against in the educational system of the country as a particular religious sect. Senator William Kenyon, Iowa, related that, and this is how it works, there are certain colleges in this country that have sought endowments, and the agent of the Rockefeller Foundation, or the educational board, went out and examined the curriculum of these colleges and compelled certain changes to be made in the studies and the curriculum. It seems to me that it is one of the most dangerous things that can go on in a republic to have an institution of this power apparently trying to shape and mold the thought of the young people of the country. Professors who did not teach along the line that they might decree had in some instances been compelled to give up their positions. And that's how these bastard money men and these big money interests got into education, got into the church, got into government, and were already, of course, in the private sector. And of course, we'll go back to Andrew Carnegie saying he never met a socialist he didn't like. And of course, David Rockefeller graduating from the London School of Economics and the Rockefellers donating to the London School of Economics and Social Sciences, we shouldn't leave that part out either, as well as having so much to do with other socialist-influenced organizations. Now, we read here from John Dewey's book from 1929 called Individualism Old and New. He said, we are in for some kind of socialism, call it whatever name we please, and no matter what it will be called when it is realized, there is still enough vitality in the older individualism to offer a very serious handicap to any party or program which calls itself by the name socialism. Your freedom, your free attitude, your individualistic attitude is a threat and was a threat. But in the long run, the realities of the situation will exercise control over the connotations which, for historical reasons, cling to a word. The older individualism is still sufficiently ingrained to obtain allegiance in confused sentiment and in vocal utterance. It persists to such an extent that we can maintain the illusion that it regulates our political thought and behavior. In actuality, appeal to it serves to perpetuate the current disorganization in which financial and industrial power, corporately organized, can deflect economic consequences away from the advantage of the many to serve the privilege of the few. The political parties have been eager accomplices in maintaining the confusion and unreality. It testifies to the import of the crowd psychology of suggestion and credulity in American life. Christian science rules American thought in business affairs. If we can be led to think that certain things do not exist 
e.g. conspiracies, they perforce have not happened. The problem of social control of industry and use of governmental agencies for constructive social ends will become the avowed center of political struggle. No phase of our culture would remain unaffected. Now, in my mind, Dewey was saying, yes, this individualistic attitude is a real problem for us in implementing our socialist world government. But we can use their likes and dislikes against them in the long run because we know what they believe. And that's what I talk about a lot is, you know, the social scientists, you know, especially thanks to social media, but the social scientists and the Cambridge Analyticas and those types have been able to study us and they know what we think and how we're going to react. And so it's even more easy to control people at this point. Thousands and thousands of people, they don't just have to rely on the nightly news because people are getting away from legacy media. So they're going to social media and they're going to online news and entertainment of all sorts to control the minds of the masses. Cuddy goes on to say that now, Cuddy goes on to say that in Dewey's book, Democracy and Education, in 1916, he had earlier written, Independent individualists have a form of insanity. Then, in 1932, Dewey was made an honorary president of the National Education Association, or NEA. And in that same year, the NEA's Department of Superintendents published its 10th yearbook entitled Character Education in which one could read that the object of character education is to teach the child that he will do the best possible thing in each situation, old and new. Relatively, must replace absolutism in the realm of morals. Loyalty to the family must be merged into loyalty to the community, loyalty to the community into loyalty to the nation, and loyalty to the nation into loyalty to mankind. The citizen of the future must be a citizen of the world. Let me translate that odd man style. You will obey us if you want to be called a good citizen. And I'll just throw this in quickly. Cuddy talks about how FDR wrote a letter to Fabian H.G. Wells and told them that he could not believe how he could retained such an extraordinary clear judgment in his books about the New World Order and open conspiracy and New Worlds for Old and the all his books that were basically manuals on how to create a world socialist state. Let's move on to 1913. The Rockefeller-funded General Education Board that we mentioned earlier published The Country School of Tomorrow, by board chairman Frederick T. Gates. And he said in that book, In our dream, we have limitless resources, and the people yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hand. The present educational conventions fade from our minds, and unhampered by tradition, we work our own goodwill upon a grateful and responsive rural folk. We shall not try to make these people or any of their children into philosophers or men of learned science. We are not trying to raise up from among them authors, poets, or men of letters. We shall not search for embryo, great artists, painters, or magicians. 
And in 1913, O.C. Carmichael becomes a Rhodes Scholar, who will be the Chancellor of Vanderbilt University, a Chairman of the Board of Trustees of the State University of New York, President of the University of Alabama, and the President of the Carnegie Foundation for Advancement of Teaching from 46 to 53. He is a lifetime member of the NEA, the National Education Association. And I know we're jumping all over the place, but again, another little excerpt by John Dewey in his book, Democracy in Education. He had written that, from a social standpoint, dependence denotes a power rather than a weakness. It involves interdependence. He then referred to individuals who have an illusion of being really able to stand and act alone, an unnamed form of insanity which is responsible for a large part of the remedial suffering of the world. In other words, dependence is strength and independence is weakness. That's some George Orwell shit right there, friends. Forward to 1928 in the New Republic once again, and I told you the New Republic has always been a socialist rag. John Dewey said, The marvelous development of progressive educational ideas and practices under the fostering care of the Bolshevist government. The task of the school in the USSR is to counteract and transform those domestic neighborhood tendencies. The influence of home and church the institution of the family is being sapped indirectly rather than by a frontal attack. All sorts of groups are instituted that militate against the primary social importance of the family unit. In consequence, to anyone who looks at the matter cold-bloodedly, free from sentimental associations, clustering about the historic family institution, a most interesting sociological experiment is taking place. Father of Education, John Dewey. Yes, the family unit is, it was always in their targets. They had to destroy it because they felt that family didn't know best. God didn't know best. The state knew best. And they were the ones to implement the state's wishes. They were the ones who were smart, intelligent, and had the power to decide what was good good for thousands and thousands of individuals. Central planning at its finest, if you will. Another friend of Dewey's in 1930, his name was Francis Potter, and he wrote a book called Humanism, A New Religion. He was also a signer of the 1933 Humanist Manifesto as well as Dewey. In his book, he proclaims, Education is thus a most powerful ally of humanism. What can the theistic Sunday schools, meeting for an hour once a week and teaching only a fraction of the children, do to stem the tide of a five-day program of humanistic teaching? They knew exactly what they were doing. They were indoctrinating. When conservatives and libertarians and anyone who's not on the left talks about indoctrination, my friends, we mean it, and we have the proof. It's all been written down. These things were open back in the day. They wrote books about this. They wrote in the papers about their wishes. They wrote about world government and humanism and secularism. 
And then they realized when they got pushed back that they would have to take this whole thing underground. And that's exactly what they did. But their writings are there. They're proof. We have that proof. We know what they've been trying to do. And damn it, they've almost accomplished it. It's only taken them a lot longer than they thought it would. Now we move on to 1932. This guy, George Counts, was a student of Dewey's and a disciple. And in his book, Dare the School Build a New Social Order, he says the teachers influence the social attitudes, ideas, and behavior of the coming generation. Our major concern consequently should be to make certain that every progressive school will use whatever power it may possess in opposing and checking the forces of social conservatism and reaction. The growth of science and technology has carried us into a new age where ignorance must be replaced by knowledge, competition by consideration, trust in providence by careful planning, and private capitalism by some form of socialized economy. A planned, coordinated, and socialized economy would involve severe restrictions on personal freedom. If property rights are to be diffused in an industrial society, Natural resources and all important forms of capital will have to be collectively owned. In July 29th of 1935, the New Republic publishes a statement by philosopher of British socialism, Fabian Harold Lasky, regarding the conclusions and recommendations, 1934, of the Commission on the Social Studies of the American Historical Association. Lasky characterizes the report as follows. At bottom, in stripped of its carefully neutral phrases, the report is an educational program for a socialist America. And we travel just a few years down the road in 1946. In the Progressive Education magazine, an article appeared by Norman Wolfell in which he stated... It might be necessary, paradoxically, for us to control our press as the Russian press is controlled and as the Nazi press is controlled. Part of the plan of the radical educators, financed by foundations, was apparently to combine various courses, history, geography, etc., into a new course generally known as da, 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 social studies. This mechanism assisted them in using the schools for propaganda. Later borrowing a communist term, the combined courses were sometimes called core studies. Mr. Sargent pointed out that there was a blackout in history in California for a long period of time. No history books were furnished by the Department of Education from 1928 to almost 1940. It was not until a legislative investigation that history books were furnished as required by law. The Building America books apparently took their place, praising Stalin and demeaning the Founding Fathers. It could not have been a coincidence that the Dilworth Committee found, among other things, that 113 Communist Front organizations had to do with some of the material in those textbooks, and that 50 Communist Front authors were connected with it. Among authors are Sidney and Beatrice Webb, identified with the Fabian Socialist Movement in Great Britain. The introduction to The Great Deceit in 1964 by Archibald Roosevelt, son of Theodore Roosevelt, 
stated, Socialists have infiltrated our colleges, our schools, our courts, our government, our means of communication, and our churches. Now, as we finish this episode up, I'm going to read a little bit more about John Dewey from the book The Hope of the Wicked by Ted Flynn. And he says here, known as the patron saint of public education, Dewey molded educational thought and methodologies more than anyone in the 20th century. Dewey saw education as a life adjustment, the school system as a vehicle for values education, and its teachers as agents of social change. Dewey had a leftist Hegelian system where there is no God, no soul, no permanent moral absolutes, and no eternity. Therefore, there are no consequences of judgment for sin. Not surprisingly, by the time of Dewey's death in 1852, the Protestant character of the early public schools had all but disappeared. A professor of philosophy at New York's Columbia University, Dewey also headed its teacher's college, which served as a model for teacher education departments at colleges and universities across America. Dewey's influence on the educational faculty at Harvard was similarly strong. In the 1950s, the Reese Committee investigated the Rockefeller, Ford, and Carnegie Foundations and their control over teachers' training schools and saw his profound influence. Interestingly, Dewey's association with the Rockefeller family went back a long way. In fact, he taught four of the family's five brothers. Dewey's indelible mark can be seen today in the outcome-based education, the OBE movement. Both progressive education and outcome-based education subordinate the individualistic traits to collectivist interests promoting a new world order. In forming the Intercollegiate Socialist Society in 1905, from which students of a democratic society, the SDS, eventually came, Dewey aimed to place socialists in America's classrooms, pulpits, and labor unions. Dewey's inspiration was psychologist and philosopher William James, whose pragmatism interrupted truth in terms of practicality, believing that all knowledge is derived from experience. Dewey encouraged students to follow their own lines of scrutiny. Dewey made inquiry the essence of logic, hence the so-called discovery learning, learning by doing craze of the 1970s. From 1904 until the end of his life, John Dewey taught aspiring educators at the Teachers College at Columbia University, which he served as head of his education department. It was he who brought notoriety to its previously obscure institution. It was he who brought notoriety to this previously obscure institution. Perhaps more than any other man, Dewey molded educational thought in the early part of the 20th century, and he controlled education in America and beyond for about 50 years. A Fabian socialist, believing in results through gradualism, or Fabian permeation, he also embraced Darwinism, that Dewey's agenda was designed to supplant the nation's public school system with a form of socialism was the finding of an investigation conducted by the Reese Committee in the early 50s. Rockefeller and Carnegie funded the Teachers College at Columbia University and expounded Deweyism while fostering some of the most radical advocates of Dewey's so-called progressive education system. 
Dewey's disciple, Professor George Counts of Columbia University, opposed forces of a social conservatism and promoted a new social order because Dewey's alma mater served as the model for teacher training programs in colleges across the United States, many believe that much of what is wrong with America's public education system today is traced to the teacher's college at Columbia University. It is estimated that as many as one-fourth of all present high school superintendents and nearly half of all teachers' college heads have received advanced degrees there. We'll go back to Columbia University being a hub for the Council on Foreign Relations and the Pilgrim Society, and connected to the Fabians, of course, as well, with Dewey being a Fabian and having such an influence there. Now, we have seen what a disaster public education has been to the individual, as we talked about it destroying all specialness and all creativity. And it's really sad, but you know, it's just the way it goes. Uh, it's not equipped to handle people who are individuals. It wants us, as UNESCO founder Julian Huxley called it, to have this universal culture. They want us all the same. We might look different, but they want us to act all the same, like the same things, learn the same things, dress the same way. And that is what this education system has amounted to. They can't handle an individual having individual thoughts, individual feelings, and being good at certain things that others aren't, because that's unfair. So we can't have one student excelling when other students aren't. So it's really a screwed up system, and no good teacher stands a chance in this awful system that they've created. As we ended here, Dennis L. Cuddy says here, what type of education will there be in the New World Order? Past presidents of the powerful National Education Association, Catherine Barrett, George Fisher, Helen Weiss, and John Ryer, respectively commented, We are determined to control the direction of education, to determine who will enter, who will stay, and who will leave the profession. We must defeat those who oppose our goals, and we will become the foremost political power in the nation. There is already a move for national teacher certification with which the NEA hopes to control and state takeovers of local schools, removing locally elected school board members that don't meet the state standards. Perhaps eventually federal takeover of state schools that don't meet federal standards. Sorry state of education today is in part revealed by the contradictory mindset of most NEA and other educational leaders who will tell you in practically the same breath that there are not serious academic problems today because they are doing a wonderful job teaching, yet more money is the solution to the problem of declining test scores. Yet it's always more money, always more funding, just like the government. When the NEA does admit education is in serious trouble in this country, it is not comforting it quite revealing to hear that they have no answers to our problems. In national columnist David Broder's interview with the NEA executive Terry Herndon, the Washington Post in 1980, at the NEA's annual convention, Broder asked about parents and voters 
concerned over the poor quality of public schools, and Herndon replied that the convention speakers and delegates don't know what the answer is. We don't have the answers. Our executive board spent more time talking about the crisis in urban education than any other topic this year, but we have no answer. That was way back in 1980, very long time ago. And do you think things have gotten better? I do not think so. And at my son's school that he will be leaving very soon, this middle school, the teachers have no control over the students. As I said, there's fighting. The students do not respect the teachers. They know that they don't have to mind them or do what they say for the most part. And so if you're a good student actually trying, then you're going to be overwhelmed by the tribe that just does not care one way or another. And they know they're not going to graduate. They don't care that they're not going to graduate. And to hell with everybody else's education. And that's just the way it is. So I think that about wraps up this episode. I may do a part two. We'll see. This was by no means a comprehensive episode on the history of education. It was just some things on my mind, some various quotes from different books that have influenced me, and I just wanted you guys to know a little bit about where our education system came from and the people who kind of created it, what their mindset was, and mostly, of course, John Dewey. And it doesn't mean, again, that all things that he was pushing for were bad, but when you look at what came out of it and how the individual had to be destroyed we see that that was very bad. We see the results of that. To this day, they have destroyed creativity. They've destroyed the entrepreneurial spirit, the creative spirit. And, of course, things are not getting any better. So with that being said, I love you guys. Thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with me. And thank you to my wonderful patrons. Please check out Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence. I was on there last week. And there's a new episode of Meaning of the Minds that I was on as well. Check that out. Cheers and blessings. And remember, their order is not our order. See you guys.